Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, I'll be diving into my favorite Carol Lombard screwball comedy and her only Technicolor feature-length film, Nothing Sacred, from 1937. It was directed by William Wellman, and in addition to Lombard, it stars Frederick March, Walter Connolly, and Charles Winninger. Nothing Sacred is a movie about phonies and lies. Hazel Flagg is a small-town girl who is misdiagnosed with deadly radium poisoning by her drunkard doctor. Slick City reporter Wally Cook hears about Hazel's illness and invites her to live out her last days in New York in order to get a story for his newspaper. Hazel is desperate for adventure in the big city, so she accepts Wally's offer. He soon finds out that she's not actually sick, so to avoid embarrassment and public backlash, they must keep her misdiagnosis a secret. In early 1937, producer David O. Selznick announced that Ben Hecht would be adapting James H. Street's short story, A Letter to the Editor, originally published in Cosmopolitan magazine, for the big screen. Selznick frequently collaborated with Hecht throughout his career, including such films as A Farewell to Arms and Gone with the Wind, for which Hecht was paid $10,000 to tidy up the script. Hecht's lightning work pace and keen understanding of the newspaper industry made him the perfect fit for this adaptation project. Years earlier, Hecht and his partner Charles MacArthur had penned the front page about newspaper reporters on the police beat, which was transformed into the film version of the same name in 1931, and again as His Girl Friday in 1940. Hecht was clearly fascinated with this topic, and he took it a step further for nothing sacred. It offers a blistering satire of celebrity culture and the role that the press has in cultivating media personalities. Allegedly, Hecht completed his script in just two weeks. However, Selznick wasn't satisfied. In Hecht's original screenplay, Hazel actually commits suicide so that she will no longer burden Wally with shame. And she also fulfills the publicity scheme that the Morning Star concocted for her. Selznick believed that this ending was far too dark for a comedy, and knew that it would never get past the watchful eye of Joseph Breen and the production code administration. Relations between the two men deteriorated further when Hecht pushed for Selznick to hire his old friend, John Barrymore, for the Wally Cook role. In his memoirs, Hecht wrote that Barrymore's alcoholism had interfered with his ability to memorize his lines, and he was then relying on cue cards. But he and fellow dramatist Gene Fowler wanted to help Barrymore secure serious jobs. Heck knew that Selznick had a fondness for Barrymore and recalled that, and I quote, his was the only picture that David had hanging in his waiting room, end quote. Selznick told Heck that if Barrymore could memorize one speech a half page long without going up on his lines, he could have the part. When Barrymore could not deliver, Selznick regretfully informed Heck that he did not want to take on such a liability. 
And perhaps in some way, Selznick knew that Barrymore wouldn't be up to the task. Instead, Selznick cast Frederick March, whose sardonic tone perfectly captures Wally's inbred cynicism. This allegedly caused a rift between the two men, leading Heck to eventually walk off the picture in late May. Selznick was left with Heck's original draft, but no screenwriter to revise it. He called in Ring Lerner Jr. and George Oppenheimer to lighten up the ending. Selznick, along with Wellman, Bud Schulberg, Sidney Howard, Dorothy Parker, Moss Hart, George Kaufman, and Robert Carson all contributed bits of additional dialogue, although Heck received sole screenwriting credit. With Wally cast, all that was left was finding the perfect hazel flag. According to director William Wellman's son, Bill Wellman Jr., Selznick was keen on casting Janet Gaynor, with whom he had worked on the Technicolor melodrama A Star is Born earlier that year. Wellman Jr. alleges that when his father met Carol Lombard, he was, and I quote, struck by her beauty and effervescent demeanor, and convinced Selznick to hire her for nothing sacred. However, memos in Lombard's Selznick International Pictures file suggest that Selznick had his eye on her for his next star vehicle as early as December 1936. He wrote to his partner, John Jock Whitney, that she was in demand at the rate of $150,000 per picture, a figure which he described as, and I quote, fantastic, but apparently the sky's the limit on personality salaries, and there's a terrific demand for her. At the time, Lombard was writing on a wave of successful comedies such as 20th Century, Love Before Breakfast, and My Man Godfrey. Her frenetic acting style came to embody the wacky comedies that had become popular in the mid-1930s. For Selznick, hiring Lombard was a no-brainer. She signed with him on May 26, 1937, earning $18,700 per week for eight weeks, or the equivalent $150,000. Selznick and Whitney set the production budget for a million dollars and scheduled shooting to begin on June 12th. Contemporaneous accounts suggest that the set's atmosphere matched the frenetic tone of the film, Perhaps a bit of hyperbole drummed up the studio's publicity head, Russell Birdwell. Critic Frank Thompson writes, and I quote, Lunch hours were spent driving a fire engine around the lot at top speed, siren blazing, and the set was a place of never-ending practical jokes, good-natured roughhousing, and continuous uproar. The studios published a series of on-set photos to accompany this on-set account. In one, Lombard and March attend to Wellman, who is wearing a straitjacket. In another, Wellman demonstrates how to kick Lombard onto a bed. Now, last season, I talked at length about the intertwined histories of screwball comedy and the production code administration, so please give those episodes a listen if you want a quick and easy overview. Like many screwball comedies, Nothing Sacred was subjected to intense PCA scrutiny concerning the representation of physical comedy. Physicality illuminates the contours of Hazel and Wally's complicated relationship and through roughhousing comes a manifestation of their repressed sexual feelings. In the film's climax, Wally and Hazel get into a play fight to give the impression that she's actually dying. Wally's boss, Oliver Stone, has invited renowned European doctors to New York to examine Hazel. The scene begins with Hazel lying in bed with a hangover, stewing in the guilt of her deceit. No, I don't want to see the man. Take the man away from me. Wallace, 
I knew you were faking the minute. Oh, they were going to arrest me. I couldn't get away. You know, I put the thermometer under the hot water and threw a fit. Oh, Wally, you hate me. I knew you'd hate me. I told you, I told you. Let's not go into that now. Oh, Aloufer, you'll expose me again to that horrible. Now keep your head and listen to me. Now, shut up. Where's the hot water? As if I didn't know. Have we got two thermometers? Three, I've got three. Two are enough. You'll never forgive me for what I've done to you. Wally, I want to die. Honest, I don't want to live another minute. It's been a lot of fun playing me for the world's prize chump. Where's the other thermometer? Yeah. Wallace Cook, king of the boobs. The only genuine horse's neck on the market. I didn't mean it. Really, I didn't. All right, shut up and listen to the greatest sucker in Christendom and listen hard. Egglehopper is coming. With his gang? What gang? Well, he's got a wagon load of scientists with him with, you know, microscopes and a searchlight. Oh, I'm sunk. I give up. Get out of bed. No, no. Let them arrest me and put me in prison. You won't hate me so much if I'm behind bars. Listen, my dying swan. This is no time to stop, Faye. You're going to have pneumonia and you're going to have it good. Well, you want me to stand in front of a window and catch cold? Oh, that would take too long. You've got to raise your pulse to 160, quick. You've got to have your gasping, panting, and covered with a cold sweat inside of five minutes. How? Oh, I don't... Fight. Fight. Come on. Come on, Delilah. Up with your jukes. Oh, I can't. I'm sick of faking and lying. Take that ice pack off your head and fight. No, no. What's the use? Why fool them any longer? Because I love you. Because I'm going to marry you. And I don't want to spend my honeymoon hanging around Sing Sing blowing kisses to you in the exercise yard. Come on, stop dogging it. You've got to be bathed in perspiration. Come on, get going, you little crook. Who's a crook? You and your crooked newspaper. So, baby, come on, keep moving, snake brains. Come I'll on. kill you. Bagging at me like I ran like I was a prize pig with a blue ribbon. Oh, blue ribbon's on you, baby. Just a big yellow sign marked fake. Huh? I'm a fake, huh? Mm-hmm. I'm a fake. What are you and that phony Santa Claus Oliver Stone slobbering and drooling over me? That's where the heroines of history. Mm-hmm. And that's where your Aunt Mary. The play fighting is an obvious solution to sex. And although the scene adheres to the code technically, the sexual subtext is undeniable. Put another way, the scene isn't necessarily sexy, but it's all about sex. The PCA, of course, took issue with this scene, and in a letter dated June 7th, just a few days before production began, Joseph Breen sent David O'Selznick a letter saying that it was, in his words, entirely impossible from the standpoint of political censorship. The PCA was concerned that the play fighting might be misconstrued by some local or state censor boards as legitimate violence against Hazel, and that Wally, and by extension Frederick March, would be perceived as an unsympathetic lead. In a similar vein, Selznick was warned that political censor boards might remove a shot of Wally and Hazel rolling over and over on the floor because of its obvious sexual undertones. In one final letter to Selznick just before the PCA's certification process, Breen once again brought up the play fighting. He explains that he would reluctantly approve the film and issue a PCA seal simply because deleting the aforementioned shot would cause them great difficulty. In short, without the shot, the scene wouldn't make sense structurally, but reshooting it would be far too costly for Selznick. Now, the PCA censorship process was often tense, but their mandate was to eliminate problematic content from Hollywood films before they were distributed nationally and internationally. 
We can therefore contextualize Breen's cautious certification as a warning to Selznick. He was taking a risk with the scene as is, and his film might be altered beyond the PCA's control. Selznick and Wellman obviously saw the bankability of Wally and Hazel's play fight and ignored the PCA's warning. In fact, they made physicality the center point of the film's extensive publicity campaign leading up to its November 1937 release. The film's striking poster, designed to mimic a boxing match notice, capitalizes on the adversarial dynamic that characterized the screwball couple. Selznick's publicity man, Russell Birdwell, had a keen eye for catchy gimmicks. In the press book that he sent around to exhibitors across the country, he suggested several wacky promotional tie-ins that centered on the roughhousing scene. The studio even encouraged theaters to set up punching bags with Lombard's and March's pictures on them. They also distributed cartoon advertisements that compared the Hazel Wally fight to a Jack Dempsey, Jess Willard boxing match. Nothing Sacred opened in time for the Thanksgiving holiday on November 25, 1937. Despite the immense publicity buildup, stellar performances from lead and supporting actors, and stunning Technicolor visuals, it was a commercial flop. Selznick International reported a loss of nearly $350,000. However, the film was a critical darling, with one photoplay reviewer calling it, and I quote, among the ranking laughing films of all time. At its core, Nothing Sacred is a deeply cynical film. It opens with a montage of shots of New York, with intertitles that read, This is New York, skyscraper champion of the world, where the city slickers and know-it-alls peddle gold bricks to each other, and where truth, crushed to earth, rises again more phony than a glass eye. From the outset, we are told that insincerity and duplicity reign supreme. Everyone is a pretender in some form or another, looking to get one up on someone else in an effort to get ahead in the world. Or, some of the people are just plain nasty. When Wally first goes to visit Hazel in her small town of Warsaw, Vermont, he finds a village of small-minded people. Gruff townsfolk refuse to help him locate her without getting their palms greased. You through? Yep. You know this girl, Hazel Play? Yep. Pretty girl, eh? Yep. Where is she now, in the hospital? Oh, just walking around, eh? Laughing, carrying on, I suppose. Yep. What's your name, Coolidge? Nope. Well, if you aren't worn out talking, what is it? Bull. Mr. Bull, my name's Cook. I'm from the New York Star. I, uh, going to be filing a lot of stuff at your telegraph office here. I don't think you are. Well, who says? Paragon West Factory owns this town. They don't care to have any scandal printed. What they say goes. Better take the next train back. What kind of a fellow is this Dr. Downer? He won't talk to you. Nobody talked to you in this town. Except me. Better go home. Well, if you don't mind, I'll uh, take a little stroll and have a look at the sights first. Well, I wouldn't talk at all if I knew I was going to do it for nothing. Oh, pardon me. I forgot I was in Vermont. Children sitting on the back of a truck pelt him with ice. Another bites him on the back of his leg. 
This comedic irreverence extends to Hazel, who becomes a celebrity simply because she is dying. The film revels in the spectacle of that media apparatus and the performative nature of public grief. In a montage showcasing Hazel's newfound celebrity status, we see a fish market using a newspaper with her photo on the cover to wrap up the day's catches. It transitions to a shot of a deli window with a sign made up of various coal cuts and sausages that reads, Hazel Flag lunched here today. Little glamorous cutouts of Hazel lovingly complimenting the assorted meats. The window card underneath says it all. All kinds of cheese and bologna are our specialty. At a banquet celebrating the heroines of history, Hazel is the guest of honor. But Wally isn't paying attention. some celebrity did. Danced in the streets with a neon light round its heart. Getting fed up with its trick tears and phony lamentations over you. I'm glad they're phony. It makes everything all right in a way. What I mean is I wouldn't want to feel I was really making all those people suffer. The crowd's phony lamentations may ring hollow, but Wally's guilty of it too. Frederick March plays him with the right amount of cool snark. His smarmy disposition stings, and is the perfect complement to boss Oliver Stone's short temper. He also has just enough conscience to recognize that his shamelessness ultimately hurts Hazel. But, for what it's worth, Hazel enjoys every minute of the insincerity. At least, for the time being. In previous episodes, I've discussed Carol Lombard's ease with physical comedy, and nothing sacred is emblematic of her skill set. As the unofficial queen of screwball comedy, she personifies the boisterous, independent screwball woman. And what I love most about her comedic style is that in spite of her star image, she was not afraid to look unglamorous if the role called for it. Nothing Sacred's Technicolor cinematography captures Lombard's beauty in a way that we rarely get to see, but the Lombard in this film is far from glamorous. She appears throughout at least half of the film in an oversized robe. She gets pushed into water, is shown drunk, and even gets knocked out while throwing a punch or two of her own. In the scene where she play fights with Wally, she sticks her tongue out at him like a child, as if to say, who do you think you are? Come on, keep moving, my little frog. I'll never forgive you Come as on. long as I live. I won't. I just hate you. I just hate you. Answer. Ah. Let go of me. Let go of me. Oh, I hate you. You're going to have plenty of reason to hate I'm going to show you cards and spades and lying for the next 50 years. I'm going to pay you back for every lie you're told. I'm going to flirt and lie and cheat and swindle right through to our golden wedding. Yeah, yeah, let me hit you just once. All right, come on. That's it. Come on, keep coming. Faster, faster. Come on, keep coming. Faster, faster. That's it. Keep swinging. That's the girl. That's it. What's the matter? Come on. Oh, oh, I'm getting dizzy. Are you? Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Now listen to me and listen carefully. When you come to, I want you to remember what I'm what saying. What do you mean, come to? I mean when you regain consciousness. I want you to switch thermometers. Put the hot one in your mouth, you get me? Yeah, yeah. Let me suck you just once. 
just once on the john. I don't care what happens. There's a playfulness to her physical comedy that is immediately charming and which cuts through the film's pervasive cynicism. On the plane to New York, she bounces up and down giddily at the thought of what adventures might await her in the big city. Oh, Enoch, look! I don't care for scenery from this point of view. But that's the Statue of Liberty! A scenery? I got in touch with Oliver, or Oliver Stone, my editor. He's toe dancing in the street waiting for us. Oh, I hope he's nice like you. Well, he's got a different quality of charm. He's sort of a cross between a Ferris wheel and a werewolf, but with a lovable streak, if you care to blast for it. You getting nervous? Oh, no, no. I just hope he won't have a lot of long-whiskered doctors lined up to harass me. You know, I'm not coming to New York to play guinea pig for a lot of scientists. Everybody knows that radium poisoning is incurable, so, so why waste any time in that direction? that you won't be bothered at all you know i'm not going to bed till i have convulsions and my teeth start falling out that's when i begin worrying isn't it this is good a time as any how are you feeling now sailor hunky darling skipper now hazel is just as phony as the rest of them but she has moments where her wide-eyed innocence shine through to remind us that she's experiencing life for the first time she often talks about being reborn, and I think this is very much the first time where she's able to let her hair down and be free, even if the circumstances are a bit dodgy. And for me, I think a lot of that is down to Lombard herself. She plays Hazel with just enough earnestness to make her multidimensional. And because she and Wally do have a glimmer of conscience, they realize that they love each other, but in order to be together, they can no longer continue their con. So, on the advice of Oliver, they get married and run away to the tropics. Hazel's notoriety can die there alone, in her words, like an elephant. But because cynicism engulfs practically every corner of this film, Hazel and Wally are recognized on their boat journey by a busybody, played by gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, and the irony of that casting wouldn't be lost on contemporaneous audiences. I know what you're going to say, you think I'm Hazel Slade. Well, I'm getting sick and tired of people mistaking me for that fake. Fake? woman how dare you speak of hazel flag as a fake how dare you slur the memory of one of the most gallant girls that ever lived despite you and your kind the world will never forget hazel flag that's what i'm afraid of don't worry baby two months from now they won't know who hazel flag was they'll find another elephant darling you're forgetting that everybody in new york knew me and loved me loved me for my courage my brave smile in the face of well, after all, I was a pretty important person. Just a flash in the pan of Manhattan. She, along with everyone else in Nothing Sacred, is unscrupulous. Theirs is a world where people act upon their own worst impulses. But it's fun to watch people behave badly. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. 
Bye-bye.